I don't know about you, but it seems like ice baths are all the rage, whether you're a Wim Hof person or you don't know who Wim Hof is. And by the way, I talked to him like 11 years ago. That was a very entertaining conversation. But anyway, point being, uh, you know, maybe an ice bath is a perfect thing for you. Maybe it's the worst thing you could possibly do. And this is true about a lot of different things that impact training and your goals, whether you're walking, hiking or doing whatever else. And that's what we're going to explore on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, typically starting feet first, because those are your foundation, but we're going to talk about some other things today as well. And we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the straight out lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or crossfit or play dance dance revolution or e-sim racing or any of the myriad things that you do uh, with your body and to do those enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. Did I, did I say enjoyably? Trick question. I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up anyway. So find a thing that you like to do that's enjoyable. I'm Stephen Sashin, your host of the Movement Movement podcast from ZeroShoes.com. And we call it the Movement Movement because we, all of us, are creating a movement, more about that in a second, about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. And the movement part that involves you is really simple. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join. There's no cost. There's no secret handshake. Uh, there is a dance step you have to learn, but don't worry about that. Um, no, there's not. Uh, but what you'll find there is all the previous episodes, all the ways you can engage with us on social media, et cetera. Uh, and basically all the ways that you can help promote this by giving us a thumbs up, giving us a good review, giving us, um, uh, you know, hitting a the like and the bell icon on YouTube. I mean, look, you know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's get started. Um, Jordan, do me a favor. Tell people who you are and what you're doing here. Yeah, well, uh, I'll start off. Thank you, Stephen, for having me over here. My, my name is Jordan Abicassis. I'm a biomedical engineer, but a strength and conditioning coach for about eight years, uh, divesting most of my time into mobility, stability, and strength trainings, and uh, helping other people move a little bit better, live, live a little bit easier, helping them get back to the things that they want to do most. You know, first of all, thank you. Secondly, you just reminded me, one of my favorite things is the gap between what people know or hear or even believe and what they do. And when we say strength training, it hit me, you know, there's a lot of people who are involved in what we do who are runners of varying kinds. And there's no question at all. The research could not be more clear that some strength training would make them better, would make them healthier, would make them less prone to injury. There's actually research from Dr. Isabel Sacco, where she had people um, in re who ran in regular shoes do an eight, some of them, half of them did an eight week foot strengthening exercise program. And over the course of a year, that group had 250% fewer injuries than the group who didn't do the exercise program. And it was a simple program, really easy foot strengthening thing, but it's amazing how few people would do that. So um, before we even get into what I teased at the beginning of this, having to do with ice baths and other training, can we just talk about, you know, as a strength and conditioning professional, what you bump into, because we're going to be giving people ideas of things to do, but what do you bump into to get people to actually implement to actually do the things that you know will be helpful most of the restrictions that i see come around a fear of uh, pain or a limitation in their own personal movements that they've almost curated in their minds or, or someone had implanted this kind of seed that they need to restrict movement in order to stay healthy because they may cause some type of further damage um, to whether it be a joint or muscle or or of some type of sort and and that's a, a lot of pain science which um you know, that's not necessarily my, my expertise. It's a whole science on its own to, to kind of get, dive into that. But it's uh, learning how to be comfortable within your own body. And then you can progress from there into further advanced movements that actually build and stabilitate or um, facilitate muscle growth 
to help overall increase performance throughout daily life. Would it be incorrect to say that, uh, to reframe what you said in one way, that many people are very willing just to argue for their limitations? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if, if you can find uh, some type of excuse to get out of, of uh, progressing, I, I'm sure some people will uh, will find some type of way to hinder themselves. You know, self-sabotage is uh, definitely something that we see very common. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the phrase self-sabotage because if you really dive in, you'll find that the person had a good reason for doing what they did. Yeah. It's just not consistent with what they're saying but it's consistent with what they think or believe. Yeah, it's definitely in line. And you see individuals holding themselves back for good reasons. Like, you know, pain is a good reason. Pain, you know, our, our, our bodies are in tune. If we're in pain, you know, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to stop doing whatever we're doing. Right. So that's, that's natural. But and, and it's, you know, slowly coming out now, the last five years of research has, has really been incredible and in seeing how we're progressing the field of of physical rehabilitation and getting people moving much faster. I mean, just 10 years ago, I don't know if you, if, uh, or 20 years ago, if you had a cast on, but they would keep the cast on for triple, sometimes quadruple the lengths of what they're doing now. So they're getting people out of cast very much earlier on, getting them moving much, much quicker because we, we know that that movement is key here to, to facilitating health. You know, it's funny. Um, we don't have to dive into feet per se, but what's so interesting to me is that everyone believes that, that getting, you know, moving as much as possible, as pain-free as possible is the best thing to do, except when it comes to feet, everyone's just ready to have their feet immobilized and not moving no matter what the problem is, even if it has nothing to do with your feet. It's like you go into the broken wrist. It's like, ooh, we're going to give you orthotics because uh, clearly your <laughs> posture is affecting how you're using your wrist and therefore it's like, whoa, whoa, slow down. So um, in fact, Dr. Irene Davis, that was her kind of, you know, wake up moment when she was teaching physical therapists all about getting people moving as much as possible, but then was going on, well, then why are we posting their feet with an orthotic that doesn't allow their foot to move, even if they have a foot injury? And so that was, yeah. she, huh, I got I to gotta look into this. And now she's the number one researcher uh, about natural movement. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you said it's spot on. It's, uh, our feet are definitely one of the most underutilized systems and modern technology. And, uh, and I'm, not sure why it took so long to progress towards, you know, individuals like yourself who who have done such great progress in the field and have advanced, you know, our footwear and our mobility and and on helping individuals understand that the structure of the foot is so critical for balance, stability, pain, movement, and and just overall bodily health altogether, posture, even shoulder shoulder movements. I mean, it's all connected throughout this kinetic chain that we that we move. And what are we doing the most? For most people, it's walking, you know, standing or walking. Well, um, here I can resolve that uh, conundrum for you really quickly. Um, where's the money? The money is yeah. not in telling people to use their feet and do a simple exercise program. The money is making someone buy a $500 orthotic, you know, every year or more. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, I, I, it's a comment I make about modern running shoes. I go, clearly they uh, don't really care about you because if they did, they would try to undermine the multi-billion dollar market for products that you need to add to your shoes to make them work better. It's like the shoe companies know what a Dr. Scholl's insole does. They know what a Superfeet orthotic does. They know all these things. They could make money if they just sort of built that into the shoe in some way, uh, and yet they don't. So that's an yeah. interesting thing. I heard you mention that on a on a separate podcast. You know, like either either they 
have completely ignored the research altogether, or they haven't been smart enough to utilize this and to actually curate something correctly. Well, there's actually another option. The other option is that they don't believe those things actually work uh, in the way that people think, which I could make that argument. Um, but, but more, they don't have another option to make their products work, which would require them to make stuff that looks like what we do. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of conflicting goals that if your primary goal is to make your shareholders happy, uh, then that's you know, that gets in the way <laughs> for people. Right. No. Well, so let's back up to what I teased at the beginning because I because I find this really interesting. I'm going to start with just the thing that I mentioned, and then I'd love you to paint the bigger context of how we got to from there. And that's the the magic and question of ice baths. Now, I will confess that um, we have a little like gazebo outside of our house with a hot tub in it, and it also has a cold plunge. It's basically just a like a rubber tub that's about 24 inches in diameter and 30 inches high. And it's used for people who don't have a bathtub. You put this in the shower, fill it up with water and you get in. I just have it filled with cold, with water that especially now that it's getting to be in the teens every night in the morning, I have to chip away the ice to use it. Now I don't use it for the reasons that people think you're supposed to use it. I don't use it because I have ideas about inflammation or recovery or whatever. I use it because I just get a kick out of how, after I'm in there for a little while and I get out, um, I'm just way more alert and it's very entertaining. There's something about, especially now when the water's 32 degrees, I get in there and I'm just curious, how many seconds is it going to take till I want to get the hell out of here? And then how many times am I going to resist getting out before I go and we're gone? And in fact, sorry, I got to say it this way. I never even have the thought I've got to get out. I have the thought like, let me see if I can stay. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting out. Um, <laughs> So let's talk ice baths and the confusion about those and the bigger context that you framed that in when we were chatting before we started recording this. So, so ice baths, and, and there's so much research now that has come out about uh, cryotherapy and ice bath work and, and utilizing this as a recovery tool. And there's definitely a, a misconception here if you were to be utilizing an ice bath as a form of recovery in the sense of muscle growth you will be blunting your effects dramatically. And it's just the, it's, I was just listening to Dr. Huberman the other, the other day about this. And it was actually, and it makes sense if you were to set your body inside of something very cold and your whole entire system is going to clamp down, your blood flow is going to be restricted. The nutrient sources are going to be restricted. The metabolism is going to be, is going to be restricted, right? So, so you're blunting a lot of these, these stress effects facilitate muscle growth as long as that's only if you do it too close to your training sessions though, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's not necessarily something that if you, you know, per se yourself, I love the, the mental benefits and I love, you know, feeling the adrenaline that, that kicks on when I set myself in ice cold water, because that's exactly what's happening. Your body's going to hit into an adrenaline epinephrine fight or flight mode holy cow, I'm freezing, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, and, and you're, you're, you're battling this game and then you get out, you feel great, right? You absolutely, there's no, there's no doubt about it. It's just when you, when you want to talk about muscle growth and you want to facilitate actually building as, or developing as much uh, hypertrophy in the actual muscle cell itself, you want to allow the body to go through these natural cycles and facilitate as much of a cascade and anabolic cascade as you can without blunting that effect. And I mean, there are a number of things similarly that just get in the way of uh, what we think is helpful I mean, because they feel good or it's a good story, like just antioxidants in general, similar story. 
is that antioxidants get in the way of letting your body do what it's supposed to do, which is because of the oxidative stress, because of the free radicals that you're generated from whatever you've done, that's initiating the supercompensation, the healing response that is going to make you better. But if you get in the way of that, then you've just, you know, ruined it. And by the way, for anyone who's not looking, who, if they don't, if you don't think you're looking for muscle growth or hypertrophy, you may be mistaken, especially if you're getting older, because then, you know, what you're doing is combating the fact that you're just going to be losing muscle mass in general. Do you want, can you, I mean, I just jumped into that. Do you want to add anything to that mix? Yeah, I mean, I, and I will say that I think that ice baths are great. And I think the uh, difference between hot and cold uh, frequencies is definitely beneficial for the body overall for long-term longevity and health, mental health. And, I mean, it, there's a slew of research that, that benefits that. But anybody who's actually done something like this will tell you that firsthand themselves is how great they feel when they when they go ahead and go through these routines. In regard to an older athlete, we'll say 65, 70 plus, right? If you're looking to, you're really looking to maintain as much as you have and to to increase overall health span at that point, right? You're not in this developmental stage in, in your 20s and 30s like you were. And as a progressive athlete who needs to build to get prepared to gear towards either professional sports or even um, higher level athletic trainings. Right. So there, it, it's definitely very subjective and personalized based off of what your true goals are and, and how you view and what you want to view, at least your your outcomes to be. And, I, and I'll caveat back to that is that if you aren't going to necessarily want to stop doing these things that want to that make you feel good, but you should have the understanding that the research shows that you need to delay this this time response by by some heavy training sets and possibly by by about a day before you go ahead and progress into, into a, a heavy ice bath cold plunge because the, the metabolic cascade has already started by that time, right? You've already got the signaling, you've got the, you've got the growth and, and it, it's not gonna, it, for, for the average individual who's doing average to even moderate intensity exercise, that it, it's going to be a minimal difference, you know, seeing a minimal effect as long as you're you're separating it away from your your exercise trainings. It's a good idea, and, and I mean, I am flashing back to the times where we'd finish track workout and then jump in Boulder Creek because it felt really good in part because we were all toasty and warm, but we definitely were not helping ourselves in terms of just maximizing the impact of what that workout did to eventually get again. You know, muscle growth is going to be highly genetically determined as well if you produce a lot of myostatin, you will not grow muscles no matter how much you work. If you produce none, you will not be able to avoid growing. We had a guy on our gymnastics team in high school who had, I can't remember the name of the disease where you don't produce myostatin. And the guy just kept getting bigger every day, just, you know, a little bit of work. And he just kept getting bigger. We used to tease him. It's like, what did you do for your biceps today? He goes, Cheerios. And, you know, <laughs> the, the most mild stimulus would just make him get bigger. It was, it was amazing and sad because that disease has a lot of other implications and he died in his twenties. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But suffice it to say, you know, it's like anything you're doing, there's going to be some growth component to it. And I guess, you know, maybe it does make sense if you want to balance it with just your lifestyle. If you don't care, knock yourself out. But sorry. And you gave me a flashback when you said hot and cold alternating. We were in Finland 50, uh, let's see, 14 years ago-ish for the World Masters Track and Field Championships. And we were staying with some friends. Actually, this is the year before that, maybe. So this is like 15 years ago. Staying with some friends who had a house on a lake in Finland. And it's been in their family for like 400 years. And so they had a Finnish sauna, or for those of you who've been to Finland, a Finnish sauna that was in a teepee. And it was on the lake 
that had just unfrozen like four days earlier. So anyway, wow. I'm you know, getting in the sauna, jumping in the lake, getting in the sauna, jumping in the lake. And the father of the people we're staying with came by and said, how many times you uh, jump in the lake? I said, I don't know, seven, eight. He goes, oh my God. Apparently that's like a big macho thing, <laughs> but I did not know. Um, so I got instant street cred for jumping in the fro- free, just previously frozen lake seven or eight times. And they mentioned over in uh, Sweden and, and Finland and, and those parts of Europe. I mean, it, being in the doing sauna routines is is normal custom work, almost like taking a shower over there. I mean, more, it's, in Finland, more saunas than people. Wow. Yeah, that's like, awesome. Any, that's really cool. Any decent office building has a communal sauna to use. Uh, it's very civilized. <laughs> <laughs> very, very neat. I, I want to bring you back a little bit to when you were track training yeah. um, when you were younger and you were jumping into into Boulder Creek. Were you at a point where you were primarily developing skill, or were, were was this was this uh, more of a, a growth phase for you? That's an interesting question, and uh, that's very kind of you to say younger. It was you know fifteen years ago, but um, and I think I probably still did it until about twelve years ago. That you know, I think I was really doing both. Um, because I was definitely trying to get stronger because there's a definite correlation between certain kinds of strength and speed. And I was definitely working on, on form and technique because I never really had any training in that before. And frankly, it's still something I'm still working on 15 years later. I'm always trying to improve my form and just getting more efficient. But the magic question, of course, is why do you ask? Because when you, when you get to that level of training, your skill is not, is, will be improved. Mm. by doing these recovery routines. But even though you're necessarily blunting muscle growth effects, because you're recovering at a faster rate mm. and by, by going through these types of ice bathing or, or uh, swimming rituals that you were doing and freezing cold water <laughs> in the creek, um, you, you, you should have seen a benefit. I, I would have imagined you had seen a benefit in, in your training styles overall. It's hard to tell because I'm an old guy, so I'm 60 now. And frankly, the hardest lesson for me to learn in the early days when I got back into sprinting when I was 45 is how to do less, is how to have more time to recover in general and how to, anytime I had the thought, you know, maybe I'll just do one more 100 meter run. It's like, that's the time to stop. So when there's that, eh, maybe, bad <laughs> idea. So I don't know, but because it, it would have been, certainly would have been easy for me to wait for a day and do it a day later because again, because I'm not training every day. And I, I found that I really only have two decent speed days in me in a given week. I need that. Uh-huh. I need that much, or maybe even a little more recovery. Like maybe I get three good workouts in every two weeks if I could arrange it that way. But to your point, yeah, just working on the skill part—that's a neurological thing, less than le- less than a metabolic right. thing. So that makes sense. That's clever. Right. Right. No, and and that's that's where a lot of the research shows, and and you'll see all the higher level athletes, whether they're they're baseball players who are under tremendous amounts of stress, or even um, the MMA fighters who are you know, going in through these fight or flight stages. But once they get to the professional level, uh, all of their routines are based around recovery um, solely. They're not, they're not looking, and that's why they have weight classes for these things. They're not, they don't differentiate. They don't want to build muscle and put on weight to, to escalate through the weight class, right. right? So for them, for their sport-specific training styles, an ice bath to help speed up recovery, whether it be before, after a workout, or even day after, is always going to benefit them, right? So once you've reached that level of skill, once you've built that foundation. That's an interesting irony or an interesting sort of contradiction that since recovery is really important and we know that certain performance enhancing drugs accelerate recovery, but they will also sell accelerate muscle growth. And if you're trying to stay in a lower weight class, 
um, where you have a better strength to weight ratio, that would be, I imagine for those people who are engaged at that level, that would be a challenging thing to balance. Yeah. They, of course, they've got a, a lieu of, of teams and coaches and, and members who are all helping them balance these type of, uh, this type of training style and their recovery sessions. And we'll go, you can still build density, right? You can, you can build muscular density without necessarily building muscular size. And yeah, you'll put on some weight, but it's not going to be anywhere near the point where per se a bodybuilder who's focusing on hypertrophy and volume will put on if they're, they're doing a separate type of routine. Well, that, that again, another interesting point, because so, if you're getting bigger, a lot of the weight is going to be just the the intracellular water um, mm-hmm. and other fluids. That so, if you're just getting de- if so, if you're building density, are you doing that? Um, what's happening at the cellular level that's allowing you to do that? Well, it's the process is still similar, but it's it's going to be different in the way of the way that the actual metabolic stress is perceived on the system, and of course, the the ice is going to dampen that that overall. Um, regardless, right? So they they will have, of course, some anabolic effect. They're not. It's not going to be like mm-hmm. zero. But the in regard to actual size facilitation and the and the way that because you have different ways that the musculature can grow, it can swell, right? The right. muscles can swell, and then they can also. But through any type of adaptation training, you're going to go through those micro tears. It's just a how what level are you actually facilitating? that type of micro trauma and and is your recovery period allowing you to rebuild on top of that micro trauma as efficiently as possible or are we optimizing more towards getting you back into shape to go back into the next round the following day well this brings us back to um, what i hinted at before and what we talked about briefly before we started which was the difference between optimization and adaptation and so just to make it easier for people to make the jump from where we just were to that part of the conversation. Can you use the ice bath situation to highlight the difference between those two and then dive into optimization versus adaptation a little more specifically? Yeah. So optimization is going to be more geared towards, well, we'll consider it towards the athletes that have already found their niche and have built the foundation of their body almost entirely. They're going to be over the age of at least 25, right? 26. And and just for that primary reason, that's when you, you really see the, the big escalation in skill level, mm. right? Because you, you've, you've built a, a very, very solid. And of course, there are very young people. I mean, look at LeBron James. He was very young, very skilled and very, very powerful at a, at a young age. But um, you'll see as, as he, as he got older, he didn't, he didn't grow much more in size wise, but his skill continued to level. And that's, that's the optimization piece. The adaptation would have been from his age of 18 to 25. And then, and then his, his optimization would have been, would have been further on. Right. So when we talk about optimization for skill or lifestyle based trainings, we don't necessarily, someone may not necessarily want to be sore for two days in a certain muscle group for certain reasons. Maybe it will hinder their lifestyle effects. Maybe they're, they're a physical labor job and they have to go back to work and they can't be, they, they, they can't have their legs detrimentally sore. Yeah. It's going to have some effect on overall growth, but that's going to be a decision that they're going to make. Well, let's also cut to the chase. You know, you do a, you do a leg workout that really uh, kills you that much and uh, you don't want to be that sore because you want to be able to sit on a toilet. Um, <laughs> I, I, have, I have on more than one occasion had to, you know, like help myself down or walk downstairs backwards because I overdid a leg day. <laughs> 
Yeah. And of course, you know, there's, there's several things that play into this and nutrition and sleep are also incredibly critical and, yeah. and creating um, a balanced uh, recovery optimization routine, as well as um, an adaptation um, based formula, Re- really adaptation in a sense of musculature or muscular health is primarily driven or at least regarded to with hypertrophy. Right. That's going to be the hypertrophy is going to be our biggest indication for the muscular adaptation. You could make a claim and to say that performance overall is an adaptation, but performance also leads in through neuromuscular stabilization and and, um, our CNS and PNS systems, as you mentioned earlier. So there's there's a little bit more to performance than there is necessarily to just strictly growth. Mm. Growth is a little bit easier to attain than and then for than optimization is itself. I, my undergraduate research when I was at Duke was on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And people really don't appreciate how much time it takes to lay down new neural pathways and get something, you know, way back in your brainstem so you don't need to think about it and you can't do it wrong anymore. And it's, of course, different for different people based on neuroplastic events. And um, that's genetically determined to a significant amount. But but suffice it to say, they also don't appreciate that the process of learning those new skills is what we call frustrating. And that's just the feeling, (laughs) you know, laying down new neural pathways. And it always takes, again, you know, longer than you would like, um, which and and like uh, at the same time, I mean, I don't know if I've just reframed it, but I love like last night I was. Every night I take my dog out for a little walk to go pee before we go to bed. And then we run home. And I just use that as a time to play with just, a, you know, like for 20 meters, just to play with my form. And I'm always finding a little something where it's, you know, it's it's never going to be locked in. Um, or maybe it will at some point. I remember watching, sorry, I'm ranting for a sec. I remember watching a video of Ben Johnson. Um, you know, he's about my age. And someone just went on the track and just decided to run with him. And the guy's, you know, weighs, geez, 50 pounds more than he did when he was competing. Not nearly as muscular as when he was competing. But my God, his form was perfect. I mean, just could not have been better. It was beautiful to watch. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, and I, I know, I know. And also, I mean, just to revert back to your form, I, and I, I know um, you've been dealing with some back issues as well that you've been you've been mediating as well and i and of course that's going to play a role in and how you and how you move especially towards the end of the night i'm sure you're a busy guy and you know running towards the end of the night you're gonna you're gonna always find some critiques if you're not you know exactly perfect throughout the thing well that's true but i mean the fun thing about having a dog so my wife and i had never had a dog before and we got this guy he's um probably about three we had him seven months ago he's a rescue and what i learned from having a dog is that i can run all out, full speed, no warm up at six a.m. because he can. Wow! <laughs> so, to see what happened. What happened? It's like haven't had a problem yet, um, and sometimes I'm just not in the mood. But he's always in the mood, so <laughs> that's a great. So that's a great training partner. He, he really is. Well, he's great for overspeed because he's faster than I am. So <laughs> I try to have him keep up with or stay with me for a little while, but then I'll let him go and I'll just do overspeed training because I'm just trying to keep up with him, and he's pulling me along. It's really entertaining. <laughs> Um, and he's he has That's so fun. much fun when he's doing that. So but so backing up uh, again, like in the context of optimization and adaptation, to loop back in our our cold therapy or our, our cold plunge or cold water, however you want to do it, our cryotherapy. So do you want to say something a little more concrete about when it, in those two phases, optimization versus adaptation? And I know we're being a little redundant when I do when I ask this. Say more about how you would apply that um, intervention in those two different phases you might be in. And also one other thing, if you would, 
for people who aren't just trying to get to a high level, but they're continuing to just do what they do, they're, they're warrior athletes. Um, you know, let's talk about optimization and adaptation as a sort of periodic thing as well. I'm imagining that there's a, a, an application there. Yeah, and it's and it's not something as you know, of course, straightforward. And everyone's individual uh, training and their personal skill level is definitely going to be um, somewhat involved in this. But I will I will caveat to to this the when we are gearing towards optimization, we're not going to necessarily care about blunting blood flow for a certain time period, as because that's it, it will help. Um, systemic recovery overall. Now, if we're going to be gearing towards actual muscular hypertrophy and full adaptation of the musculature system itself, you're not going to want to go ahead and do and jump into a cold bath after after your workouts. And you, and you'll see a, you'll see a lot of the athletes go ahead and and it's becoming a wave. You know, we'll we'll just oh let's all let's all jump in a cold bath. Well, and and it's not necessarily going to be beneficial for everyone's goals. Now, to the degree that it actually is, it's going to be on the individual level and, and what you prefer. If you are going to accept the fact that the data shows that, hey, this is almost like taking Advil and you're basically creating an anti-inflammatory system by jumping in a cold bath, right? That is going to slow down muscular growth. That inflammatory cascade is what is driving hyper hypertrophy. That is the metabolic um, cascade that, that you actually want to go ahead and continue through to build and to adapt the muscles to get larger and stronger over, over a course of time. So our, as we, if you are gearing towards adaptation and, and you would assume that most individuals who are into the gym are, are gearing towards adaptation, Right. Because they, they're, they're still building that foundation for the most part where I believe it's what 73% of individuals are under exercising in the United States right now, mm -hmm. right. Uh, according to WHO. And, and that's, that's a, it's quite a big amount. So even if they were doing two days a week, you know, we're, you're still going to want to maximize that type of effect for your body. You're, you're not going to necessarily want to be jumping into a cold plunge every single day because you're not really placing the stress on your body to, to, to see the benefits of it. So we, we want to go ahead and gear towards optimizing or um, adapting our musculatures to get stronger, bigger, and allow us to, to progress in our lifestyle habits without necessarily impeding on this type of growth. And there's, there's, there's several things that, that we can do. And it's um, right. So we, we've got our nutrition, we have to hit our protein levels, right? Whether it be plant-based or, or, or animal-based, you have to hit your protein levels and you want to go ahead and, and then optimize for sleep. And, and somewhat of a recovery routine where you are not over stiffening yourself where you're not going to move the, the following day. And so you've got to find this healthy balance as, as to what works for you. When you start getting into further into optimization and optimizing for specific motor patterns, like a pitcher, right? Hypertrophy is not the game for a pitcher to build. You, you don't want hypertrophy of the rotator cuff. You don't, you know, you don't necessarily want large hypertrophy of, of a muscle that's going to, you know, inhibit mobility, right? So our goal is to optimize our ability to go ahead and have this more specific movement be greater and more skillful over time, right? And that's when we're going to start implementing more of a recovery-based routine rather than an adaptation-based routine. So for people who are not, you know, aspiring to be, uh, to master some skill or be a professional athlete, again, are sort of, I hate the phrase weekend warriors, not that, but people who are, who are trying to be fit trying to be healthy, et cetera. What would you recommend, if anything, for them about how to, you know, frame what they're doing in this context? 
If you have the opportunity to do to jump into a cold plunge or go through hot and, and cold plunge, it's definitely going to be benefit to separate that into its own individual day. And if you may even consider some low intensity steady state cardio um, on that type of day, if you are a fitness freak, but you definitely don't want to do a heavy lift and do a ton of volume on, especially like for your legs, which is a, an incredibly large portion of your muscular group. You're not going to want to go into the gym and, and blast your legs and then go straight into a cold plunge bath. It's, it's not going to be beneficial for you. And actually I would recommend even furthering that out from a day to even two days before to allow that, that growth to continue to facilitate rather than, than jumping right in and uh, gearing towards that. Because for the most part, while you may feel good in the moment, if you're, if you're restricting blood flow to the area, you're just going to dampen your recovery and your overall muscular adaptation and, and its own. So well, it's, it's, the, it will really- be beneficial overall for... No, go ahead. go ahead. Well, here, I'll jump in. That And you're, by the way, you're up, we're having some um, connectivity issues. That raised the interesting question then is what's your thought on heat therapy? Heat therapy is great. So heat therapy and sauna use is great because we're going to be facilitating further blood flow, right? We're, and when we talk about adaptation wise, we're, we're, it's, um, that will increase vasodilation. It will increase blood flow systemically. We're going to increase that, that metabolic uh, nutrient cascade that we want towards the muscles. And there's really no evidence showing that, that it will dampen any of the effects whatsoever compared to cold therapy where you are immediately constricting and restricting blood flow. Uh, upon upon submersion. Do you know if there's any data on, uh, I'm going to, I'll do cold then warm, on what temperature you need to, if you're going to do cold therapy, what temperature is good, what temperature is bad? Same idea on the heat part, whether there's a difference between getting in a hot tub, getting in a regular sauna, finished sauna or uh, infrared sauna. So just what are the options for hot and cold? So with cold, it's definitely a titration effect because it's going to be subjective. And somebody who's never been in a cold plunge might not want to jump into 30 degree Boulder Creek water. <laughs> and well, no, Boulder but- Creek, just to be fair, Boulder, Boulder Creek was, I don't think I ever got him when it was anything below mid forties. Uh, but my little cold plunge where I got to chip away the ice, that's a whole other story. <laughs> Well, the um, and you definitely want to want to ease into this because you can be very cold and it can and it can be detrimental overall. And you you definitely don't want to jump into ice cold water for your first time alone. And you don't want to prolong that. <laughs> well, wait, hold on. That I'm, I'm, wait, I'm I'm laughing because I'm also a 17 times member of the Polar Bear Club. So on January 1st, heading out to the Boulder Reservoir where they did just chip away the ice or maybe you know, the water temperature is somewhere between 32 and 34. And then they would have a thing where you could either just jump in and jump out or jump in and kind of swim from dock to dock, which of course I had to do that. Um, and I'll never forget, I went with a, a friend once <laughs> um, there was two funny parts about this. One is they said, uh, who wants to jump in naked? And my friend, she raises her hand and says, I do. And then after she kind of commits to this, she looks at me and she goes, oh my God, I haven't shaved my legs. And I said, uh, trust me, no one's going to be looking at your legs. And so <laughs> we do the thing where we swim across. And this is a person who is a collegiate athlete and just you know, very intense. And so I, we swim across from dock to dock. I jump out and I turn around. She's right behind me. And she you know, gets to the dock and she puts her hands up and then has this look on her face that's a combination of confusion and terror 
as she starts to sink back into the water. And then I grab her and lift her out. And I said, what happened? She goes, it's the first time in my life where my body just wouldn't do what I was willing it to do. And so that was, you know, that was the other crazy part. But then the other thing is you do jump into literal ice cold water like that. And for the next few hours, your body has no idea what to do. It's constant. It's trying to change the, your temperature. I mean, <laughs> Hot on the outside, cold on the inside, cold on the inside, hot on the I mean, it's like it just can't figure it out for a few hours, which is, um, again, if you're into weird physical experiences, you know, very entertaining. Otherwise, it's annoying and horrifying and you never want to do it again. But, you know, after 17 years, I went, I think I'm done. <laughs> I've, I've personally never been in, in water below 50. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah, but water, yeah, but water below fifty. I I have an extreme cold sensation thing, and I and I and I'm trying to I'm trying to work down, trying to work down into I, it. I don't and, think I don't think you can work your way down. I think you just need to yeah. do it in like a, <laughs> a small dose. What I can tell you is this: if you when you're jumping in or diving into like literally you know thirty feet of water, if you don't, how do I want to say this? If you try to keep yourself from expecting that it's going to feel cold, if you just kind of go in a little open-minded and say, I wonder what this experience is going to be like, it will be surprising to you because I'll tell you what happened for me when I do that. If I really pay attention, I jump in or I dive in and my brain basically shuts down for a split second. Everything kind of goes white and it's like, what the hell just happened? My whole nervous system is completely confused. And then you get cold for a moment. But then by the time you're trying to register, you know, whether what's going on, you're numb. And in fact, that's the most challenging part. If you're doing this at like a lake or whatever, is just getting out because your feet will get numb really fast and you got to be able to, you know, walk and then you'll get out. And let's say it's, you know, 10 degrees outside. You just jumped in 32 degree water and you walk out of the water and you feel hot. doesn't matter what the temperature is. It's like you can walk around practically naked and you feel pretty warm for a little while and then all hell breaks loose. But if you really just pay attention, that initial diving, it, it'll, it's fascinating. It's because it's not what you expect if you can put your expectations aside. I've done some of the cryotherapies. And of course, the cryotherapies get very cold. But yeah. it's a little bit different than, than the ice plunge. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's um, so, but we're going to work towards it. I'll, I'll take a video next time. And I'll, I'll get it down to, to about 42. And um, I'll go over my buddy's uh an MLB pitcher and, you know, we'll go, he has, he has one that he sets it at 42 and, and we raised wow. it a little bit for me. And then the first couple of times I dove in, yeah, you just gotta, <laughs> try and go through. But, get in, get out. So anyway, all right, so we were talking about sort of optimal temperatures for cold and yeah. optimal um, uh, applications and temperature for hot. Yeah. So and for the individual, it's, it's going to be more of a, of a time duration more so even, even than the cold, because if you can, if you can facilitate one minute, great, you know, if that's comfortable for you, awesome, you will see some type of benefit, neurological benefit from 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 even even the the immediate dose. If you can get to two, I think recommended dosage is all the way up to five minutes. I don't think anybody's recommending past past five minutes of of seated full submersion cold plunge. And um, I know you brought up well the different factors in this, the benefits are not the same by taking a cold shower. Right. So you right. you're Right. So so being an ice bath and being fully submerged is a completely different uh, bodily systemic reaction than just turning your water on cold and having it hit your skin um, when you're in the shower. So there's really nothing. And cryotherapy is kind of somewhere in between. Right. Mm. Cryotherapy is um, a little bit better than necessarily doing a cold shower and but not necessarily as systemically benefit or um, systemically I don't know, great. I, I, that's a bad term, but 
<laughs> optimal compared to cold plunging, right? So our, our, a full systemic cold plunge inside of an ice bath is going to be your best way to facilitate that. But if you if you were someone like me who <laughs> is very temperature sensitive, <laughs> start off with a couple of cold showers and work your way towards work your ways up. <laughs> well, you know, I um, I know that some people, and I know Huberman's one of them, says that the whole benefit is to get to the point where you're shivering. But I know that when I was doing um, baths before I had the cold plunge and I would have the, the water at about, about 50 degrees. And at 50 degrees, it would take me 15 minutes until I would start to shiver. And it's like, that's wow. just way too much effort. Yeah, no, I, I said it and I'm shivering. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'll be the first to say it, you know, like, you know, and I, and I, I'm, I, I will, I will be dumping some ice into to lower the, to, to lower the temperature a little bit, a little bit further. And then there was some ice, but it's, I'm working towards it. <laughs> well, you know, the other, the other problem with, with doing it slowly, I don't know what the, what the geometric configuration of the cold plunge you're thinking of is, but with mine, you basically stand in it and then just sit, you know, sit right down. Right. So you kind of go past the nuts and nipples layers pretty quickly. Cause that's where, you know, yeah. you want to stop it. You just go down and mostly um, you, you uh, scream curse words as you do it. And then as soon as you're all the way down, that stops. But on the way down, you got to, you know, say things <laughs> that would embarrass your mother. And, um, but then it's, it's, and then of course the tricky thing is, your body temperature is heating up the water right around you. And so if you're not moving, it's not as bad. If you kind of swirl around, it stays pretty damn cold. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you can guess which one I do. So, but it, do you know if there's anything in the research about whether 50 degrees is better or worse than 40 degrees is better or worse than ice cold or anything in between? The, the further you go down, the, the further the effect is going to be. Oh, right. The, the, the sharper, the sharper the effect is going to be. Right. And, and that's, um, you would see that across, across all scales. And, and that's, um, and, and when I say slowly, I meant more towards temperature dropping slowly, not necessarily like leaning in slowly, but I, I've, I've slowly digressed down towards, towards 50 and I, I will continue to go down towards 40 and kind of, and kind of escalate further. Like I said, my buddy has, has his own little tub system that, that you can regulate the temperature itself. I'll be so. curious to see what happens if, as you do it, um, how you adapt. And what I'm thinking when I say this is when I first, we first started zero shoes and we were just making sandals. I was curious, like how long I could just stay in sandals throughout the Colorado winter. And the next thing I knew it was March. And then the next year, same thing. And what I've noticed is that my, it seems that the, my circulation has changed or I've developed more capillaries or something because now when I go out, um, my hands and my face and my head can get really cold, but my feet rarely get cold. And, and this has been years, but it definitely seems like there's been some sort of adaptation. And I'll be curious to see if, you know, you have anything similar to that. Yeah, I, I would assume that the slow progression towards, I mean, and, and it may not be optimal. I may just be being a baby about this. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I, I you know, somewhat talking about be like, Jordan, just jump into the cold water. And, and you know, and, and that may be, that may be a faster track to it and may be fine. But <laughs> this is, uh, at least for me, it felt a little bit more comfortable jumping in into, yeah. into that first before before I got into into some of the lower temperatures. In regard to heat, we we can we can handle some pretty high heats uh, overall. And if you were to be using a sauna, of course, the 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 first thing that you want to do is make sure you're hydrated, right? You don't want to dehydrate in the sauna. And if you need to get out, then you need to get out. You shouldn't be lightheaded. You shouldn't start feeling dizzy or woozy in any type of capacity. And you should always, and I, I believe in doing things with buddies all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're, you're exercise training and or, or doing any type of 
different type of event that may have some type of reaction for you, you know, do it, do it in a safe manner and a, and a controlled setting. So that way, if something does go wrong and you want to push yourself a little bit further, you'll have a little bit of help there. Right. But saunas, you can get all the way up. I, I think Joe Rogan's, you know, famous for this and going all the way up and doing like 240 degree sauna temperatures. And well, I'm pretty sure that's in like, you know, like a quote, traditional sauna, not an infrared because the infrared stuff um, that it's a very different feeling. You don't feel like you're walking into you know, super hot air because you're not. And so that you can have a much lower temperature where you're feeling the effect of it in, in a very different way. And I don't know that I have a preference um, at this point. Um, and I didn't know if there was any research about one being better than the other. I'm actually not too familiar with infrared saunas. I mean, I'm familiar more so with like infrared lighting and like um, my companies that like, like Juve, Juve creates those large uh, full panel infrared lighting systems that you stand in front of. And that's more of, I, I've actually haven't seen anything on, on infrared lighting in regard to, to well, it's, not, therapy. it's not infrared lighting per se, cause it's actually, it's, it's not going to be at a light frequency. I mean, you don't see anything. You're just basically, you're kind of microwaving yourself. And, um, <laughs> and the advantage is that there's way less involved in there in using an infrared sauna or, um, and mine has, a, I don't know, a couple of panels. They don't feel warm to the very warm to the touch a little bit because there's some fabric on top of it, but you definitely, you know, feel like you're getting toasted. And it's again, a very different feeling than being in like a finished sauna where there's higher humidity, for example, especially here in Colorado, if you're in a infrared sauna, there's no additional humidity. So it's just the normal Colorado dryness at a bunch of heat. So like, I don't think I ever take mine above 140 degrees. Um, or maybe 145, but in a traditional sauna in the, you know, high hundreds, 200, I've, right. I've done that. Um, and again, just a very different flavor. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely really, really hot. Um, when you go into those, I, I don't have any experience with it, with the infrared saunas. I'd be very curious to try one out and, and to see, to see what at least my own personal perception of, of the, the experiences, but I know I, I do a lot of breathing work and a lot of breathing work inside of the saunas um, tends to be very beneficial for at least my mindset and uh, and how I feel leaning after a gym session. It's, it's very beneficial for me. So I, I definitely enjoy it. When I was a kid, I got into uh, competitive diving when I was 10. And I thought that the sauna was the thing you got in after you got out of the pool to dry off because um, that's <laughs> what I did. Uh, didn't realize that people used it for any other reason. <laughs> did it dry you off you didn't sweat more after? no <laughs> no i was 10 you know 10 year olds you don't sweat like that so i get in i dry off i'd get out it's like oh, that's nice yeah and 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 just to, to caveat back to if, if you are looking for strength and muscular gains asana will not in, inhibit that or at least there's no current research that's going to show any, any type of strength or or even conditioning or endurance loss through through asana whatsoever and more of, and even, even through through endurance and, and skill-based performance basing, um, ice baths is, are still very beneficial, right? So you just need to titrate it towards, towards your base and personal skill level and, and where you are and what you're actually expecting to receive out of your body. And it's, it should, it's good to be aware that by cold plunging yourself, you, you will, you will dampen the overall effect systemically of your blood flow. And if you understand that, you know, more blood flow equals greater adaptation, then, that leads you to your answer. You know, right. maybe you shouldn't be doing this so often. Right. Well, that seems like a perfect place to wrap it up with some um, great ideas for people to ponder as they consider, again, whatever level of activity you engage in. Um, that uh, I'm hoping this is really helpful. So Jordan, if people want to find out more, get in touch with you and for anything that you may be doing, how would they do that? Yeah. So uh, you can go to adamrehabilitation.com. 
uh, Adam stands for Advanced Dynamics for Adaptive Movements, or you can follow. So back up and spell things for people because they'll need to spell things. Yeah, yeah it's A-D-A-M, just like Adam, rehabilitation.com, um, or you can go on and find me on Instagram at Adam Rehabilitation as well. Those are going to be uh, where I'm putting out the most of our content for, for our stability, mobility, and strength work, teaching individuals on how to stay healthy and get back to doing the things that they love most. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I hope people do take uh, take you up on that offer to go check out what you're doing and get involved with you in some way. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of people in this space who um, are mostly just kind of regurgitating things that they heard and they never really put them to the test. And one of the things that's very fun, I could have said this and should have said it earlier. Um, I can just tell from, you know, hearing the way you've analyzed this, that you are someone who really likes to know what's for real and not just repeat something that, you know, you heard that seemed to work for somebody. And that's a um, a rare and valuable skill in the strength and conditioning world. So um, kudos to you for that. And again, I hope people take advantage of of that a pleasure. And so for everybody else, um, thanks for being here. A reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the different ways you can find us and engage with us. Speaking of which, if you have anybody uh, that you, well, if you have any recommendations, criticism, comments, et cetera, that you want to share with me directly, including finding someone who might want to, you know, talk to me about how they think my head is completely up my butt because I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome when it comes to things like natural movement. I'm up for the conversation. I'm happy to be proven wrong. It'll always lead to something better. Um, I don't think I will be when it comes to, you know, using your feet naturally, but, you know, I'm up for the game. Uh, you can drop me an email. Just send something to move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, go out, have fun, and live life feet first.